Welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, and why it isn't working, as well as it could be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work, and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better. Perhaps even a lot better. This is a little journey we're taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand because those systems affect all of our lives all of the time. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better. In season one, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. In season two, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job. Looking ahead in season three, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. Importantly, when we get to season three, we'll be sharing our ideas, but also sharing some of the best of your ideas about how to make things work a bit better. Welcome to the fourth episode of our mini-series, Between Series 2 and 3, where we're looking at people, organisations and issues which fall outside the established party political systems. We're looking at how some of those people and organisations are seeking to influence what happens in this country, and in the world more generally. In other words, seeking to affect our lives for the better, but not necessarily bothered about party politics. And we'll be looking at some of the issues which currently aren't being addressed successfully by our political party-dominated system of politics. Today will be the first of three short episodes in conversation with Professor Anand Menon from King's College London. Today we're going to look at referendums. Referendums are in the news a lot more now than they used to be. There was the referendum over the UK leaving the EU back in 2016. And later on, we'll look a little bit more about how that worked and perhaps how it didn't work successfully, whether you voted leave or remain. But there have been others too. Before that, there was the other referendum about membership of the EU in 1975. Curiously enough, that was actually a bit like the 2016 referendum because the UK had already been a member of the EU for two years by that point even though some people think that the 1975 referendum was actually about joining the EU, it was actually about continuing to be a member of the EU, even way back then. There was another referendum which almost no one noticed in 2011. I mean, the turnout was only 40%. That referendum was about changes in the way in which the UK voting system might have worked. Those are the only three national referendums which have ever been held. There have been others on more regional or local issues. One that's in the news at the moment is the plan from the Scottish Government to have another referendum on Scottish independence, possibly towards the end of 2022. This follows other referendums on Scottish independence, including the last one back in 2014, when the result was a vote that Scotland should not be independent of the United Kingdom. So what are we going to look at today? Briefly, the idea is to look at what's referred to as the Brexit referendum of 2016, but as a way of understanding more about how referendums work and some reasons why they might not work in the way they're intended. 
we're going to look at why we had a referendum to leave the EU, whether referendums are more about judging what the people think or more about managing the internal arguments within the political parties. We're going to look at what the legal status of the result of a referendum is and we're going to look at how you set up a referendum and what question or questions you should ask. But first, and for the pedants among us, perhaps most importantly, is it referendums or referenda? What's the proper plural if we have more than one referendum? In the end, the answer is partly down to personal preference and partly down to a little bit of logic, perhaps. Both forms are used by many different people. People who say referenda are just trying to be accurate, taking the logical argument that the plural of a Latin noun which ends in um is a plural Latin noun ending in a. However, 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 referendum isn't technically a Latin noun. It's what's called a gerund, if you want to be picky about the grammar. And as a Latin gerund, referendum has no Latin plural. If you take what is called the Latin plural gerundive, referenda, then that actually means things to be referred. In other words, it's the things which are plural, not the processes or the holding of the referendum which are plural. So if we're using referendum to refer to the process of asking the population of a country a single question, and that is what we're doing, each referendum is asking a single question, then if we have several of these processes, then it's the English word taken from the Latin, the English word referendum, which we should make plural in the classic English way, which is to add an S on the end. So, with that logic, it's referendums. I know, it's not really that important, but it is kind of satisfying sometimes to have a clear answer. It's actually more correct to use a simple, straightforward, easily understood form. Not the rather too clever form, sort of showing off that you did a bit of Latin at school. Referendums. Anyway, now that we have that unimportant bit out of the way, Let's have a look at what referendums actually are and how they work, or don't work. To help to guide us through this, we're joined today by Professor Anand Menon. Hi, my name's Anand Menon. I'm a professor in European politics at King's College London, and I run something called the UK in a Changing Europe. And what does that do? The UK in a Changing Europe, it's a weird thing. We're funded by the, the National Research Council, not specifically to do research, but to tell non-academics what the research says. And that means research about? Uh, Research broadly connected to Brexit, which was quite a clear remit during the referendum and immediately after the referendum when we were negotiating Brexit. Now, as it's both Brexit and its ramifications, it goes a hell of a lot wider to everything, including levelling up the state of devolution and global Britain. So let's start with an easy one. Why did we have a referendum to leave the EU? The government held a referendum in 2016 largely because there were structural problems that uh, people like George Osborne was concerned about, like the role of member states that weren't in the euro within the EU. He was worried we were being sidelined. But the clear reason, the clear big political reason why we held a referendum was way back in 2013, we witnessed the sight of Conservative MPs defecting from the party and joining UKIP. UKIP, whose policy platform was to cut immigration and leave the European Union as a way to do it. That put enormous pressure on the Prime Minister, David Cameron, who then saw UKIP win the European Parliament elections of 2014. And the offer he made in this famous Bloomberg speech of January 2013 to hold a referendum on membership 
was intended as a way of staving off that challenge from that side of his political party. OK, members of Parliament from the Conservative Party defecting to UKIP. How many Conservative MPs were defecting? Only two. There were lots of rumours that there would be more. Uh, and David Cameron, I suspect, would argue, if we asked him now, that the fact of saying he would have a referendum prevented more from following. OK, is it fair to say, then, that the referendum was held for the purposes of holding the Conservative Party together? Yeah, I think that was the major driving reason why we had... I mean, the, the idea of a referendum had been on the agenda. I think the Greens had it on one of their manifestos, perhaps in 2015. I think the Liberal Democrats had it on their manifesto in 2010, if I remember rightly. So there was this notion floating around for proponents of membership... They wanted to have a referendum just to get rid of the debate once and for all, to put an end to it. But for Cameron, the major reason, there's no doubt about it, was internal party management of the Conservative Party. OK, and to take a step back from specifically the Brexit referendum for a moment, to look at referendums in general, we said that the Brexit referendum was held for internal Conservative Party reasons. Is there an example you can think of, of a referendum which has not been held for internal political party reasons? No, but that's a function of our system, isn't it? Is that we don't have a very good sense of when and under what conditions and how referenda should be held. There are other countries like, say, Switzerland is the obvious example where these things are written into the constitution and you have pretty clear ideas as to what referendums are for and when they will be used. So here it is very, very ad hoc and you're absolutely right. If a prime minister calls a referendum, it's either because they see it as in their interest to have a referendum or because there's an issue that they want to get off their plate and avoid responsibility for. With that in mind, what should the status of the outcome of a referendum be? Words like mandate are bandied about. It appears to be claimed that the governments have to follow the result of a referendum. In fact, are referendums binding in any way? Do they force the government to follow the outcome? Or should they perhaps be seen as advisory? Uh... I think they should be seen as advisory if the government sells them as advisory. I don't think you can have a situation where a government, as they did in 2016, says, your decision is final, we will act on what you decide, this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance to vote. I don't think you can have that sort of referendum, see the result go the way you didn't want it to go, and then turn around and say, this has no legal force. Strictly speaking, it had no legal force. But I think once you've said you're going to act on it, it would be invidious for Parliament to turn around and say, actually, you know what, you've got it wrong. OK, I can see that. Certainly, if those are the agreed ground rules in advance, then absolutely. You can't change the rules once you've started. That would be like setting the rules for the way the country should behave during, say, lockdown, and then not abiding by those rules yourself. Absolutely. You can't change the rules once you've started just to suit yourself. However, and I hope you'll forgive me if I continue to press this point a little, given that it was a big change, and still is a big change, one was still going through, might it have been sensible to have set up the parameters other than a simple majority for a large change, just from the outside in any decision? It would seem that a small majority, in this case just over 51% against just under 49%, in favour of a really large change is probably the worst of all possible worlds. Had it been 75% in favour of leaving, or perhaps 75% in favour of remaining, perhaps things would have been clearer in the wake of the referendum. I think what I'm curious about here is the legacy of the referendum, the echoes of the campaigns, the two sides carrying on throughout our country. 
this legacy, these echoes of the campaigns are important because it has been suggested that people in the UK might now be more attached to whether they were a Leave or a Remain voter than to whether they're a Labour Party supporter or a Conservative Party supporter or indeed a supporter of any other party. There's, there was, and there's indeed what all the survey evidence suggests is that there still is. More people have a Brexit identity now than a party political identity in this country. But the answer to your question, I think, I would give is no. Uh, I don't think you should have asked for a supermajority for the simple reason that we didn't ask for a supermajority in 1975 when we last voted. And I think that would have smacked of um, not being fair. Now, as it turned out in 1975, the vote was 66-33. So if you'd said two-thirds, you'd have squeaked over the line. But they didn't say two-thirds. And I think that the Leave campaigners would have had a fair point if they turned around and said, so it's simple majority to stay, super majority to leave. How is that fair? OK, I can see that. If the result had been, say, 60% in favour of leaving, but if the line had been drawn in advance, setting out that a 75% majority would have been required for us to leave, then we would have remained in the EU, but with an imbalance in the country. Which would have been a massively volatile political situation apart from anything else. I mean, if, as, as I suggested, the ultimate rationale for having this referendum was political, the worst of all political worlds was to say we're going to have a 70% threshold, leave polls at 60% say, and we remain in. That would have led to a very unhappy country and a very unstable politics. But actually, the problem goes deeper than that, doesn't it? Because we gave people a binary choice for what was essentially a multiple choice question. Because we said leave or remain, we emerged out of the referendum on the 24th of June 2016, and all of a sudden leave morphs into three or four different options. And the fundamental problem in that sort of period that we all remember, that mad period between 2016 and 2020, is that whilst there was a tiny majority for leave, there was absolutely no majority for any particular variant of leave. So if you put remain, leave with no deal, leave with Theresa May's deal, leave with a Norway deal, there was no majority. And that's why one of the reasons why this thing has haunted us. It's one of the reasons why Parliament found it so difficult. Parliament didn't struggle with Brexit for four years because they're rubbish or out of touch. They struggle with Brexit for four years because they are an exact mirror representation of the divisions among the British people. And that complexity, those many different versions of leave, well, that's why we have people who voted leave who say, well, this isn't what we voted for. This isn't the Brexit we voted for. Absolutely, on both sides of the divide. So I did a debate on the telly the other day uh, with uh, UKIP, a former UKIP MEP who was saying that Boris Johnson has betrayed Brexit. OK, let's pick at that a little more. There is a sense that just before the referendum, in the campaigning for the referendum, well, we had two sides that were campaigning, two sides that existed only for that campaign. And then both of them just melted away after the campaign. As such, well, the implication of that is that there was no long-term responsibility for anything that was said, for any of the mistruths, perhaps on both sides. Should something have been set up which didn't make that possible? Was that a hostage to fortune by creating two sides of a campaign around neither of which there was a clear long-term political party standing on either side? Both of the major political parties, all the political parties, have their own internal divisions, not least over the Brexit issue. As a result, nobody took responsibility for being on one side or the other. 
And now nobody seems to bear any responsibility for anything which was said or done during the campaign. It clearly was a hostage to fortune, but almost an inevitable hostage to fortune in the sense that we tend to have referendums on issues that are different to the traditional left-right division of our politics. That's to say, on issues that go that fall neatly along the division between Labour and Conservatives, that's what we have politics for. It can deal with it. But precisely because Brexit cuts straight through both parties, so you have Conservative Remainers, Conservative Leavers, you have Labour Remainers, you have Labour Leavers, it becomes very, very hard to deal with that in a parliamentary setting. So actually... The reason why this became so messy is intimately linked to the reason why people felt we ought to have a referendum on it in the first place. OK, understood. Now, for today, we're going to leave it there with Professor Menon to try to retain our focus today simply on the process of holding the referendum, rather than on the wider question of our relationship with the EU and how Brexit has worked out in practice. We'll come back to all of that later. So what have we learned so far? Well, the idea of asking the population of a country what they actually want on a single issue might seem like a good idea. Certainly, a general election is an incredibly blunt tool to use to assess what people actually think. Whilst one party might win a majority in an election, and such and such an issue might have been part of that party's manifesto, it certainly doesn't mean that there's a majority in support for exactly that policy. It may just be that On balance, that party was seen to be the most competent one, with the best overall portfolio of policies and promises. It wouldn't be fair to pick out just one. We've discussed this already in some detail in episode 6, Smoke and Mirrors and Manifestos. But at the same time, setting up a referendum isn't simple. There might be what seems to be a single issue, but in fact there are very many different related issues. We saw this with the Brexit referendum. Even for those people who voted Brexit, many, many of them, perhaps even most of them, are now saying, well, this isn't the Brexit we voted for. And they're right, because there were many different options available. And a simple, single question allowed everyone to see what they believed they wanted, even though what they actually wanted might have been very different to what somebody else wanted, even though they both voted Brexit. And there are other problems too. If the campaigning groups don't have a long-term purpose and simply melt away once the referendum is over, then who can turn to anyone afterwards to hold them responsible? And if there's no one to hold responsible after the referendum, then how could we possibly be sure that they were going to behave and campaign responsibly during the referendum? Certainly, involving the people of a country in thinking about politics more, well, that's probably a good thing. But merely to hold a referendum with a simple yes-no type vote on what is being presented as a single binary choice, well, life isn't simple. And that's why other people are advocating things like citizens' assemblies. And that's in our episode 22. Next time, well, next time on Taking the Party Out of Politics, we're going to continue our conversation with Professor Menon, looking a little bit more at the relationship between the UK and the EU, both before the Brexit referendum and now, now that the UK is no longer a member of the EU. How do we get on with our nearest neighbours, with our largest international trading partner? If you'd like to take a look at the transcripts of the podcast, including links to all our sources and references, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to the podcast from there. 
And of course, if you'd like to contact us, not least if you'd like to share any ideas which you have about how we can make things better, or if there are any areas of how politics is supposed to work, but why it isn't working, then please email us anytime on info at talktogether.info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps people to find us, it just really also makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you. Yeah.